If you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of Ecclesiastes, which I think we're on page 556 this morning of the uh, Blue Pew Bible. We'll be on 555 and 556. As you turn there, just a reminder that one of the metaphors we've been using for this book is that Ecclesiastes takes us into this dark valley and um, it asks us to contemplate things. I'm setting my timer here, by the way. I always feel like I need to let you know that. Um, so not setting my fantasy league or taking texts. Um, Ecclesiastes sends us into this valley to contemplate the world as it is. Uh, it's brevity, our lives, how short they are. That death is real and that we're here for a time and then we're gone. And how does that then influence the way that we live and how we think about things? And, and as we've been saying, it's not easy to get to that valley. In fact, we spend a lot of our lives trying to avoid that valley floor, trying to avoid the things that Solomon in this book is presenting to us. But it would be wise for us not to do so. It would be wise for us to trust as we go down together to that valley floor. And from that point, that vantage point, to begin to listen to his wisdom and listen to the ways that he speaks about life, that we may have joy in this life as well. And that's really what we're going to look at this morning is, is there joy to be found in this life under the sun? So with that, let's give our attention to the reading of God's word found in chapter five. We're going to begin in verse eight, and then we're going to read all of chapter six. This kind of structurally gives us one, uh, fits together as one, one unique section. So let's read this. Oh, and one last thing. This is probably one of the most, this is probably the most sections, I guess the heaviest section of the book. And uh, there's some things here that we're going to read that um, I just want you to know that many of us are, are familiar with personally. And I read these things with sensitivity. I don't read them um, without recognizing that this is life for a lot of us in many ways. And take that uh, for, just know that as we read this. Sorry. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter for the high official is watched by a higher and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with its income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he has come from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all the days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not, he will not much remember the days of his life. 
because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he, enjo- of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he, even though he should live a thousand years twice over. Yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known, by, and it is known what man is. And that he is not able to dispute with one, strain, one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? This is God's word. And let us teach us now. Let us pray now that he may teach us his word. Heavenly Father, we need your spirit, we need your grace to teach us this morning. Would you settle us? Would you open our eyes and our ears to hear and to see your goodness to us in these words from Solomon? We pray this for your glory. Amen. This past weekend, we celebrated Virginia's, uh, our, one of our four daughters, and Virginia turned five, and we celebrated her birthday this this past Saturday, and it was a, a, an excellent birthday party. Um, Ada did a great job planning all the details. It's a party we've never done before. It was a cheerleading party. I've never had a cheerleading party. And we actually got real live cheerleaders to come and do some cheers, and the girls and a couple of the boys came to the party. The girls were dressed up, the, the boys weren't. Um, interesting. But uh, yeah, it was great. We had the balloons, we had the cake, we had the ice cream, we had the whole thing. But, you know, living in our house, uh, this had been talked about for at least for at least two months going now at this point, you know, uh, back in August. It was when's my party, right? When 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 are my when am I going to get the open presents? Is mommy and dad is my party this Saturday? Um, And then as we watch TV, I want that. I want that. I want that. Right. And and then, you know, crafting all of the the things that you want to have happen at the party. And of course, who's going to be there and. Um, and all of this, it's just this big buildup and we get to the party and we have the party and it's wonderful and it's great. And uh, then, then the next thing I know, we're packing everything up and we're putting it back in the car and the balloons have come down. Actually, they got lost in a tree. Um, you know, it's over. And as I was talking with Ada about it that night, I was thinking, you know, gosh, and this is more me looking at the party, not, not Virginia. I looked at her and I said, you know, that was really great. What did you think about it? Did you like it? And she said, yeah, that was fine. 
Um, do you think Virginia liked it? I mean, I hope that it was everything that she wanted. This is me talking to Ada. So I hope that it was everything that she wanted in life, not in life, but in this party. At which point, you know, Ada goes, I'm sure it wasn't. <laughs> but that's a birthday party, right? And, you know, as I, as I look at this, as I think about this, how foolish I was to even say that. But, but there I was just sort of longing for Virginia and for all the anticipation for things the things that she wanted, I wanted it, I wanted it to, to deliver. And we start here this morning because isn't this just another example of all the things that Solomon has been talking about? And Virginia had a great time. I'm probably more like working on this myself internally. But just like that party, you know, we go to the good things in life that God gives us. And there's a part of us that we know intellectually that we are not to take those things as the thing that satisfies, right? It is never the gift itself. It is never the party, as it were, that is to bring us salvation. But there's a part, there's something in us, something broken in us that we talk about often in this place that never stops looking for those things to deliver. There's always a disappointment on Christmas morning, right? When, when we open the presents, And a couple days later, it's just we're done with them. They did not deliver. Well, this is where we are as we come out of this interesting transition from chapter 5 last week from the church, from the temple. And it's as if some of us think that when we come in here, we get this this gospel, right? We get this life-changing message and we meet with God's people. And, you know, depending on other traditions, I'll just use the church as a whole, there's a sense that maybe once we come here and we visit with God and we worship Him and we leave here, then everything will be different. And it's interesting to me that where Solomon goes after life under the church is he goes right back out of those doors And he just begins pointing out all the things that are still true about you and about me. That there's oppression going on. There's brokenness at every corner. We're doing the best that we can with it. But more than anything, what really needs fixing, what really is still the problem, is what's on the inside. What's what's, what's going on in our hearts. And he knows that the things that we value, the things that we look to, what I'm going to call God's good gifts to us, he knows that it isn't just a one-time thing that we begin to recognize, oh, that's not what I should desire in life. That is not what truly satisfies. We know that. But we also know that when we leave these doors today, we are going to fall back into the same traps over and over. And that's where he wants us as we look at this text. Because in order to find joy under the sun, we have to start with what's going on in our heart. We have to start asking God to change us from the inside out that we might begin to see him, the good gift giver, as the one thing that satisfies, the only thing that satisfies, and not his good gifts. We are tailor-made because of the fall to take those good gifts, whatever they might be, and we'll look at a couple from our text this morning, and worship them. This is what ultimately is the vanity that Solomon speaks of. Because it never satisfies, nor was it supposed to. And God now is in the business, though, of changing hearts so that we can begin to dethrone these bad gods, these good gifts, and begin to enjoy them. Begin to enjoy them as we're supposed to. So that's where we're going uh, this morning. You don't have an outline on your bulletin. Here are the things that we're going to look at. Very simple. I want us to see one universal truth, two evils, and three implications. So one universal truth from the text, two evils that Solomon points out to us, and then three implications from the text. 
So let's look at the first one, the, 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 the one universal truth. The, the structure of all of this, um, you've heard Darwin talk about chiastic structures where you have sort of a capital A and a lowercase a and a capital B and a lowercase b. And then what's in the middle is really the point here. This is this section. It's a great example of this section. And you'll notice that in chapter 5, verses 10 to 12, in many ways line up with chapter 6, verses 7 to 9. You heard very similar things here. So I'm going to go through this text just as the structure presents itself. I'm not going to go through it um, linearly. So verses 10 to 12 in chapter 5 and verses 7 to 9 in chapter 6 show us this one universal truth. And what is that one universal truth? It's that everything under the sun doesn't satisfy. Yet we think that it will. We think that it will. Solomon takes us out of the temple or church from last week and back into the streets, as we said. This transition is, is, like I said, very interesting. Perhaps many will think that because that we have visited God in worship, that all is different now. But people are still being oppressed. Things are still not working the way that they're supposed to be working. Solomon even says, don't be amazed at this. This is life under the sun. You, don't you know where you are? Don't forget that. It seems then that he decides to take this entire, take this whole, and, and to say why one shouldn't be amazed and what one should do instead. And that is we should enjoy these good gifts of God. So in verses 10 to 12 and then 7 to 9 of chapter 6, he gives us this one universal truth that nothing under the sun satisfies. And he zeroes in, interesting enough, on money and wealth and, and children, which in Solomon's day, Money and wealth and children would have all been the things that people would be pursuing and looking and longing for to, to make life work, to find happiness and purpose and satisfaction. But in verses 10 to 12 of chapter 5, Solomon says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. And we start to hear some of the wisdom here. Remember, this is Solomon, though. This is perhaps one of the wealthiest men in the world um, or ever to live. In many ways, he is speaking from experience. But what he is saying is this. If wealth, the things, if wealth and the things that money buy, if this is where your heart is, if this is what you're looking for, um, for satisfaction, right? If you're looking for what money can buy you, the lifestyle, all of this, then your income is always going to frustrate you. Why? Because it'll never be enough. Many are familiar with the quote from John D. Rockefeller, who was one of the richest men to ever live in the world. Um, and uh, he, when asked the question to John, how much money is enough? And Rockefeller's response was, well, just a little bit more. And that's not, you know, someone who's making a cool $30,000 a year saying that, right? That's somebody who has translated in today's dollars, billions and billions of dollars, just a little bit more. And that is universal. Your income is fine, right? But if you could just have a little bit more, and we start playing that mind game with ourselves. If I could just get that raise to 75000 then, oh man, I'd be able to breathe. And we get there, we move on in life, and all of a sudden we start thinking about what it would look like to get a hundred or 125 And you see where this is going. And we've talked about this in here before. This is, this is no surprise. But what is a surprise is that since the last time that we've talked about it, we've bought into it again. We believe that this is actually going to change us. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. This is our gospel. It is is universal that money and wealth does not satisfy, yet we continue to go back to it and see and ask that it will. 
In chapter 6, verse 7, though, Solomon writes, All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. This is saying the same thing. Our appetites for things like money, God's good gifts, they never satisfy the way that we want them to. But why do they not satisfy, and why is our appetite never satisfied? Our appetite for things in this world, under the sun, is never satisfied Because remember, we have eternity in our hearts and we are longing and looking for eternity in things that that moths and rusts destroy. This is Christmas morning every single year. What happens on Christmas as a child, as we said, we wake up, we jump out of bed and we run to the tree to find gifts and presents wrapped with colorful wrapping. We open those things up. We get the video game that we wanted, right? We get the iPod, we get the diamond earrings, we get that trip. And then it comes and it goes. And here we are, we feel fooled again almost, except for the diamond rings, right? Earrings, right? But the trip comes and goes and those memories were great, but there's just still something there that it didn't, it didn't do what I thought it was going to do. Why? Because we are always looking for these gifts to do what they were never intended to do. We are looking for electronics, friends, made in a manufacturing plant by human beings to supply us with eternity. This is what, this is what Solomon is trying to show us. And it's, it's something we already know. But you begin to see the point is it's not that I know it once. It's that my heart keeps going back to these old rhythms And so he asks us to ask the question, why do we think this will satisfy? Why do we put so much hope in them? And the answer is another product of our divided hearts that we looked at last week. It's not just that we're divided and we like to go in one direction or the other. And and then sometimes, you know, do the things that God wants us to do. But other times do what we're interested in. Rather, it's in our fallen state. We long to be the author of our own salvation. It goes so much deeper than you just wanting to find enjoyment and satisfaction in this world. We are constantly wanting to be God. It is why Christmas never satisfies, but we keep thinking it will. It is why our money is so dangerous because we think that we can find salvation in it if we just have a few more zeros at the end of our net worth. It is why we look to other gifts under the sun like food and drink and sex and work to satisfy, but they never do. We are looking for salvation. And it's not just that we're looking for salvation. We want to be the author of that salvation. That is really at the foundation of what it means to have a divided heart. Again, what we looked at last week. But this is the universal truth within all of us. We long to be the author of that salvation. And it's why nothing under the sun satisfies, but we constantly think that it will. And this is interesting because Solomon then begins to push in in two specific areas about wealth and money that we're about to look at here in a second. But we, we really believe... That, you know, if we just use money and wealth, for example, we really believe that these things, gifts, the gifts of God, we believe that if we were to get them, they would always deliver. They would always satisfy. But we also believe that they would never go away. And these are the two areas. These are the two evils that Solomon turns to next. And this is the second point, the two evils found in verses 13 through 17 of chapter 5 and then verses 3 through 6 of chapter 6. So let's look at these two evils now. 
And in that text I just mentioned, Solomon presses in on these two common experiences that we all have in life under the sun. The first evil that Solomon notes is basically this, that a good gift cannot be enjoyed. That a good gift cannot be enjoyed. He says, God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy this. In other words, this person has, any, has anything that they can dream of except the chance to enjoy it. And we know these people. We have met these people. We've heard of these people. They have all the money in the world. But they're depressed and lonely. Right? They have all the things. They have the right house, the right job, the right family. But they just seem to be miserable. They lack the capacity to enjoy these things. Or we see this as the man, or the, uh, the man as, as the text says, who fathers a hundred children, which in that day, having many children, assured survival and wealth for a long period of time. And he has all this. He has as many children and, and he lives many years, but his soul, as the text says, is not satisfied with life's good things or its gifts. And Solomon then asks, since everyone dies, who is, who is better off? The one who lives 2,000 years but enjoys nothing and enters eternal rest or the one who enters eternal rest immediately without knowing what it is like to suffer and to be unsatisfied. And Solomon has asked this type of question before and he's not saying that it is better in the sense that, you know, he's not saying that life is not worth living. Let me be clear about that. He is showing us the depth of the evil that it is to live in this world, have everything and not be satisfied or able to enjoy it. We'll come back to this later, but this is the first evil. You can have all the stuff in the world and never enjoy it. Likewise, on the other side of that, we know that you can have nothing and be happy. Make sense of that, right? There has to be something else going on there. But that's the first evil. The second evil is that you can have all this stuff and it can be taken away from you. You can lose it. And this is chapter 5, verse 13. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by, the, by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. We are not sure what happened here in this sense, but something along the lines of losing money and some type of bad investment or maybe a business venture went, went sour. And this begins to eat at this individual. It begins to drive this person crazy because this person thinks that if if he or she had it all back, all would be well. But instead, as the text says, he eats in darkness, which means alone and unnoticed, and much vexation and sickness and anger. The point is that there is no certainty in wealth or the things of this world. Again, like we've heard this. We've heard this. We could all be the victims of the next Bernie Madoff or someone could be stealing our identity and emptying our bank accounts right now as we listen to the preacher. Don't look at your phones. A natural disaster can take away everything in an instant and gains from this year's bull run can be wiped out and given away to next year's bear. We've seen this before. And this doesn't mean that we don't use our brains to prevent those things from happening. But the point is there is no certainty in wealth or the things of this world. That's the evil. And again, it's not an evil because God doesn't stop it or that he allows it. It's an evil because it happens all the time. That's what, that's what Solomon is saying. It is an all too common experience. And the point that he's pressing in with at this, at this time is that we, we know that to be true, yet we still go after these things for our own salvation. We still go after these things in our lives. 
But did you notice what was left of the individual in verse 17 of chapter 5? He never got over the loss. It ate at him until it devoured him. Why? Because he made wealth his precious. He made the things of this world his precious. He made the gifts of God his precious. It became his God. Idols of the heart are more than wants. They are survival to us. This is why when you leave here this this morning, your heart is going after something because it's trying to survive. We lust after them and we think we must have them. It's our salvation. So to lose it or to have it taken away is maddening, which Solomon is showing us that this is also an indicator that these are idols in our lives. What is it that you would lose in this world That wouldn't bring you sadness, but would drive you mad. That would drive you to the point of ultimate destruction is really the picture that he gives us. Those things would be things that we are asking too much of, Solomon is saying. What Solomon is pointing pointing out, what he sees as he walks around are these little G-gods what we can turn wealth and money and anything under the sun into in order to become life for us. And it's interesting that this is where Solomon parallels this response to that of us stillborn in chapter 6. Because looking to these things for salvation, friends, for life, is nothing short of death itself. And do we see that? So this is where we are as we leave the temple. We enter back into the world where things of this world do not satisfy. Specifically, we long to author our own salvation by looking to these things, the gifts of God, as we are calling them, money and wealth specifically, to give us life, to save us. We also see these two evils that continue to come up every day. One can have everything and not enjoy it. But one can also have everything and it be taken away from him or it can be lost. Why are we looking for certainty in these things? And we see that how this can leave us angry and bitter. Well, So then the question begins, is there any joy to be found in this life? And the answer is yes. And this is where we get to the three implications where I want to spend the rest of our time. But you notice that as we read verses 18 and 19 in chapter 5, this is not the first time we've heard this chorus from Solomon. And I mentioned this, that he's going to keep coming back to this. And it's going to grow more, more and more um, emphatic. It's going to be, uh, right now, this is the strongest we've heard from Solomon. Behold, here's what I've seen. Go, eat and drink and enjoy the things of God. Not because it's all that there is, as we have said. It's because there, this is what there is. This is what God has given us. But you can begin to see now that as he is working us to this end, the reason we don't find joy in this world and the reason we don't enjoy the things that God has given us is because we are asking to find salvation in those things. We are asking too much of it. And so we get three implications out of this that will help us guide our time, but also help instruct us on how to really enjoy living in this world Amongst its fallenness and amongst the brokenness that we experience. And the first thing that I want us to see is that finding joy in this world, this is one of the three implications, is never found in the gifts of this world. And that's very simple, but it just needs to be plainly stated. Finding joy in this world is never found in the gifts of this world. In other words, if you are looking for happiness and joy in your life, if you are trying to eat, drink, and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one's toils under the sun, you will not find it on Christmas morning under a tree. Didn't know this was going to be a Christmas sermon, did you? 
The power to enjoy things in this world does not rest in the gifts themselves. It always rests in what those gifts are pointing to, the giver of those gifts. And we might know this or agree with it, but the burden of Solomon in his own life, and that is we know this, but that doesn't stop us from pursuing joy and happiness in life in the next possession, the next raise, the next vacation, the next home renovation, the next child, the next graduation, the next whatever. We don't stop. That's why John Calvin writes, the man's, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. And Solomon leaves this temple and goes, takes us back out into the world to show us the world so that we might not mistake our own hearts. This is very intentional. If it sounds like I'm being repetitive, it's because I want to be. We have got to get this nailed into our own hearts and minds. But here's the point. You don't stop making idols of God's good gifts unless something supernatural happens to you. You can't come in here and sort of expect to get some good advice and then be able to go out there and magically change the world and the circumstances. Something has to change within you, something supernatural. In other words, if God doesn't intervene in our lives, we will always look to the gifts of this world for salvation. And in that sense, all of this is vanity. And do you see the desperation that is there? Solomon is trying to show you something about your heart that is true about his, that your heart longs to worship something. And it will not stop unless God intervenes. You'll notice the power to enjoy God's gifts is given by him, according to Solomon. And the question we are left with, if we are listening to Ecclesiastes, is have you asked God to give you that power? It's kind of language that sounds a little hokey today, doesn't it? But I'm serious. Have you asked God to show you himself, to invade your life the way that he invaded Moses in the burning bush that we looked at last week, briefly? It's that simple. So that he might begin the process, y'all, of shutting down the factory of idols. And I labor here so much because we talk about this stuff, but I don't, I'm reflecting on my own life. I don't pray that God would shut down the factory of idols in my life. I know it's an idol factory. I know that I'm going to take the good gifts of this world and, and abuse them and look, look for them for too much, to give me too much. But I don't pray and ask God to give me the power to stop that so that I might actually enjoy what he has given me. This is where Solomon is pointing us. Because finding joy in this world, finding it outside of the good gift giver. And that's really what that begins to do. When I begin to be opened up and changed to see and to, to stop making idols of these things and to see the gifts for what they are. My eyes are moved to the gift giver, Jesus himself. The one who truly satisfies. If I'm trying to find joy outside of Jesus, that, friends, is the epitome of vanity. Joy in this world is never found in the gifts of this world. That's the first thing. The second thing, though, is joy in this world, and it's similar, though, is found when we start asking God to change us from the inside out, not the outside in. Let me say that one more time. Joy in this world is found when we start asking God to change us from the inside out, not the outside in. 
If Solomon were writing a modern translation today, he might just as well tell us to stop trying to save ourselves. Solomon is telling us that we are all, telling us something that we already know, but that we fail to practice. We are told to accept our lot and to rejoice in our toil, he says. But what is your lot? What is my lot? It's that we're human. This is a common theme throughout this, te- this book, that we're human, which means you can't fix what's, what's ultimately broken in this life. You can't fix it with money. You can't fix it with wealth. You can't fix it with pleasure, with wisdom, with anything. And so accepting our lot, according to Solomon, means depending on God to fix what we can't fix. It's why we have journeyed to this valley floor to begin with. When we do that, we learn to ask God to change us from the inside out. In other words, to change our hearts, to start seeing him as the great fixer, the one that we need to be dependent upon, and stop trying to... to, to change us from that in order to keep us from trying to fix this world, to fix the problems that, that are in it. Most of the time when we are praying to God to change us, we, we don't realize this, but we're cha- asking God to change us from the outside in. Jesus, give me patience. Right, that's a very external thing. Jesus, help me be kind. Jesus, give me strength to do what's right. God, get me through this one situation and I'll serve you for the rest of my life. Change me from the outside, what is external, in. We'll deal with the inside later. But just fix this one thing. Solomon asks, do you know who you even are when you pray that? Do you know who you are? How how did this section begin? Verse 8, going back to chapter 5, verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. That sounds strange to any of y'all. Do not be amazed at the matter. In other words, when we leave these doors today, we enter a world that is so messed up, it's hard to know where to even begin. And so Solomon is saying, you need to begin with you. Stop asking God to change you from the outside in. Stop asking him to change your circumstances. Maybe another way to put that as we talked about before. And start asking him to change your heart from the inside out, which means changing you being honest with what it, what it wants, being honest with why it wants what it wants, being honest with the fear that you have there, being honest with the fact that it cannot fix what needs fixing. And you could summarize this by saying, this is asking God to teach you to be dependent on him, the one who has fixed everything in Jesus Christ. Here's a good question for us. What's the first thing you do when there is a problem in your life? This isn't a measure of holiness by any means, something that I was reflecting on. Is there any movement to pray about it first? And that's not me. Like I'm, I'm gonna, I want to get something done here, right? My instinct, choice of words there, is to get, the work, get to work solving the problem. And that might be fine when it comes to hanging curtains in a house. Right? Or getting the car repaired. But what do I do when my anger continues to resurface with my children? What do I do when my lust for money just doesn't stop? What do I do when my appetite for sex doesn't end? What do I do when my desire to be completely self sufficient always is there in front of me? What do I do with my depression? What do I do with my cynicism? What do I do with my coveting heart? Is the point. Do I try to fix it? 
This is where Solomon is saying, are you even aware of who you are, of where we are living? These are all issues brought on by the fall, life under the sun. Are we being honest with the fact that we cannot fix what needs fixing? Therefore, changing the outside doesn't change or fix the inside. Dependence on God says, I will repent of my self-salvation. I will repent of looking to God's gifts to satisfy and to save. And instead, dependence on God says it's the heart that needs fixing from the inside out and not the outside in. And this is an ongoing thing for a Christian. This doesn't stop. And the only way you get there is by forsaking your own salvation. It's asking God to change you in this way. It is no surprise that the same examples of money and wealth and children that Solomon appeals to in this text would probably be the same things that he would appeal to today. If he were writing today. Why? Because it's a hard issue. We are no different than those people that he was writing to. We are always looking for the next thing to to save us. And how ironic as we read this today in the most wealthiest time in all of human history, in the most wealthy, in the wealthiest country, we still don't have enough. We aren't even close to having enough. But man, we just keep shoveling. We'll keep going. And this is the problem. This is the evil. This is the thing he's pointing out. So we need to be changed from the inside out. That's the second implication. The last one is like wisdom, finding joy in this world begins with fearing God. And this is a larger, larger theme that we're not going to get to the bottom of today. But we, we, we know that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. But so is finding joy in this world. In other words, the source of joy begins with the fear of God. And as we said last week, that begins with grace. It begins with grace. If, if belonging in here, as we said, is, you know, the grace of coming to worship God says, I don't, be, I don't belong here. I don't deserve this, but I'm welcome here anyway. Then the grace of God and the gifts that he gives us are, you don't deserve these things, but I want to give them to you anyway as well. And there's, there, there's, there's, a, there's a freedom there that we experience after we leave this place, Right? experiencing God's grace, that it is good and right that we take the things that he has given us and we enjoy them for what they are, having reordered our lives and our hearts to seek him and after to see him as the one who satisfies us. But grace is always the way that we truly learn to enjoy God's good gifts in this world. Because when we deal with God's grace in here, when we worship, we begin to believe that God might actually be good. And this gets to the heart of the matter. See, worship in here really is a picture of starting with the inside out, is it not? When we start, like, when we start here, like we saw last week, we come into God's house to listen. When we come into contact with his grace that says, you don't deserve this, but you're welcome here. You're welcome to all I have. We begin to reverse what went wrong in the garden, the sin under all the sins, believing that God is not good. But grace tells us a different story, doesn't it, about God? Grace tells us that God is actually good. And it's Jesus who shows us that the grace that it's Jesus that shows us what this grace actually looks like as he is hanging on a cross for us in the New Testament. As he is dying for those hearts who go after everything else in this world, but him. When that happens, when we begin to see that the whole whole new world opens up for us as we leave here. When we stop looking to the things of this world to satisfy because God's grace begins to satisfy, everything changes for us. 
When we stop looking to the things of this world to save us because grace tells us that somebody else has already saved us, everything changes. And we begin finding joy in this world because we are finally setting our hearts on what the gifts pointed to in the first place. The grace of God and Jesus Christ. This is what Christmas is all about in the first place. But that begins with the fear of the Lord too. If the worship of of God says you don't deserve this, but you're welcome here, then the gifts of God tell us you don't deserve this, but I want to give them to you anyway. I want you to have them all. And the reason I want you to have them all, listen to this, is because I love you. This is the message of the cross. God is telling us, I want you to have these things because I love you. Finding joy in this world begins with the fear of God, the fear of the Lord, because it begins with God's grace and his love for you. I'll end with this. We returned back to this five-year-old birthday party yesterday morning to close. As I said to Ada, I hope Virginia's party was everything she wanted. And I mentioned this earlier. I knew that that was about as foolish thing that I could say uh, than anything I could say. I knew it was wrong, but I wanted it to be true. And as I thought about that, I recognized that perhaps what's going on with myself, but also Virginia, maybe all of us, is that it's just a longing for something better. That's all this is, right? It's a longing for something better. And here's the point. You know, when we begin to look at, the, the, if we, when we begin to look at God's gifts and begin to look for those things to satisfy, when I return back to this birthday party, when I think about Virginia, she, like all of us, has to learn that it's actually in her parents right now where joy in this life is found. Why? Not because her parents are awesome and amazing, not because they're perfect, but because her parents love her and parties do not. Do you see that? The way that Jesus is trying to change you and to change me is to show you that the things that you're going after in this world, the wealth, the money, the status, those things will never love you back. But I will, he says. I will. And this is what changes all of us. And this is what begins to write our lives as we leave here to experience now the things that, that, that once enslaved us, the things that we went after to give us life. You can now enjoy those things. None of the things our hearts naturally desire love us back. Only Jesus, the good gift giver, does. And friends, this is the only way we experience the joy that we were meant to experience in this life under the sun. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we pray for our hearts and how messed up they are. That we know that as we leave here, all is not going to be fixed. We are going to look at things of this world. We're going to desire things that we shouldn't. We're going to long and believe that they will change us and they won't. And the only thing that changes us is the love of God and Jesus Christ. Would you do a work on us? Would you do a work in this church, a work in this community of changing us from the inside out, making us people who are ready to destroy this factory of idol making that our hearts are to receive what truly satisfies. And that is your son, Jesus, to, to write those, that order that we may begin to actually enjoy the, the things of this earth that you have given us and their intentions Would you be pleased to do that in us? Through your Holy Spirit we pray. Amen.